Thanks very much. That was, that was really brilliant and, really, and very clear. So I've got a question now about people that are cleverer than me. You, I think it's very difficult for us, members of the public, to know everything that our, our, the, the, that our pension funds are, are, are invested in. However, the, the financial professionals um, during this securitization that you were talking about, who are buying, buying these toxic bonds, surely they really ought to have found out what was, what was in these packages. And that's my question. Did, did they not bother just because they wanted to... They just wanted to get in on, get, get in on the, um, on the uh, boom. Um, can, can I give what is probably a, will be regarded as a slightly cynical answer? The answer is, uh, why did they do it? Because they got large fees. That was, that was what really generated uh, a lot of the activity in the financial sector is because they were getting fees. Um, and that's why Goldman Sachs sold assets they knew were worthless because they were getting fees for doing it. All right? What can we do? Well, I think the answer is it's very difficult to find out exactly what's going on. You can do it, but it needs a lot of, it needs a lot of pushing. Um, I mean, one route that you can take is to kind of insist that uh, your funds, invested funds, are invested in kind of ethical trusts, all right? And there are some pretty good ethical trusts around, so you can do that. Um, but the truth of the matter is that very often, you know, pension funds are moving money between one thing and another very, very quickly, almost on a daily basis. What I would like to see is requiring um, financial institutions to regularly update the information so that you, as somebody who's holding, let's say, a unit trust or a pension fund, there's a website you can go to and you can see exactly who they're holding. But you need to go beyond that because even if you've got that information, you may not be able to find out exactly what those companies are up to. Um, and you can do one of two things. Either you can rely on an ethical unit trust to do that investigation for you, or alternatively, you have to do an awful lot of work yourself trying to find out what they're doing. I mean, it's this lack of information, I think, which is the big problem. So, so the question, the question was, um, Donald talked about work as a means of exercising stewardship. What do we mean by work? Do we mean just paid work? Uh, I mean, the quick answer is no. Um, some people have suggested that when we draw up the national income accounts, we should actually include the value of all the unpaid work that goes on, much of which goes on in the home, much of which goes on in the voluntary sector, you know, there's a lot of work going on out there. But the idea that I, I, I have is that work is something which I think is integral to what we are as human beings. Um, why is it that they say that being made redundant has a bigger impact, or as, sorry, as big an impact on your sense of well-being as the loss by death of a close relative. I mean, that's extraordinary. Now, why is that? 
Well, the answer is because I think work is part of what we are, uh, and that's the way the you know Christianity under the Christian understanding of work is that we are made to be workers. It's natural for us to want to work. Now, that doesn't mean we should be slaves or anything like that, but there is this sense in which work is part of what it is to be a human being. So Stuart's question was, what does Donald think about um, the actions of the US government in bailing out savings and loans and a number of other organizations? There's, um, there's something that the insurance markets call moral hazard. Um, this is the reason why you can't get 100% insurance on your motor car if you bump into something. Um, usually there's a thing called an excess. Why is there an excess on motor insurance? Well, the answer is very simple, because if you didn't have that there, nobody would care to drive out of the gate without scraping down the side of the car, because they could always, have, they could always have, have the thing repaired at no cost. So moral hazard means what you, the danger is that if you bail out someone for their mistakes, their errors, and so on completely, then they don't take care anymore. And I think Stuart is absolutely right. Um, it must have been 1998, I think it was. There was this big hedge fund in the United States which went completely belly up and was bailed out by the Federal Reserve in the States. And the Federal Reserve also bailed out some other institutions. And, of course, what happened at that point was the bankers said, it's okay, we can take risks. If it goes wrong, we'll be bailed out. So... What you need to do is somehow you need to structure it in such a way that if financial institutions make bad mistakes, at least some of the damage comes back on them and preferably on the people who made the bad mistakes. And we've all seen it, haven't we? We've seen bankers who have walked away from failing institutions with vast pension pots. Uh, that is not a very good way of organising things because it means in future people may, within the financial sector, may make really very risky decisions and say, well, it's okay. If it all goes wrong, I'll pick up my pension pot and go to the south of France. Great. So that's, that's the danger. That's what's called moral hazard. You must set incentives in such a way that people bear some of the risks themselves and therefore think quite carefully about what they're doing. Uh, at the beginning of your talk, Donald, you said that some people think that there could be another financial crisis a bit like this recurring could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Do you personally believe that the architecture is there for something as de terrible as this to actually reoccur within the next few years? Thank you. Sadly, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know whether enough has been done to kind of, as it were, shore up the financial institutions. My suspicion is probably not. Because it takes a long time. I mean, for example, the Vickers, um, the Vickers recommendations 
aren't due to be fully implemented until 2019. So we've got another four years to go. And I think people were pretty shocked by what happened in, in China. And they were shocked by that because the fear was that some of that would, they would be contagion back into, particularly into London. Um, I really don't know, Ian. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know enough about it. It seems to me that not enough has been done to shore up the system. I mean, let me just intervene, give, give Donald a breather. I, I'm sure that's absolutely right, and it's very important that uh, economists should never be thought to be good soothsayers. We've got no idea what's... Um, we, can't predict, we can't predict the shocks that will happen in the future, but what we can do is look backwards. And uh, the last recession was led by a financial crisis, but the last recession wasn't the first recession. We'd had one in the early 1990s, and before that, we had one in the early 1980s, and in the 1970s, we had rather a lot. And in the 1960s, we had so many that the, the path of national income goes up and down like an oscilloscope on speed. So I think one thing we can be almost sure about is there will be another cycle. There will be another recession, because if there's not another recession, we would have achieved what um, it was Gordon Brown who said, we've, we've beaten boom and bust relatively soon. We won't beat boom and bust for all of the reasons that I think Donald described about the nature of the human condition. And one way or another, we tend to feel more and more pleased with ourselves the longer the economy has been going well. And sometimes that leads to a financial crash. crash. Sometimes it leads to a housing market crash. Sometimes it leads to massive inflation. I think the one thing we can be relatively confident of is that there will be another economic problem. What we're not quite so sure about is what the cause of it will be. Uh, this is also for Donald. You, you, you mentioned briefly the relationship, perhaps, or knock-on effect from China to London, and that just made me wonder about one of your, I think, potential sol possible structural solutions, which was taxing um, financial transactions. Given, in, unless you did it everywhere in the world, could that ever work? Um, oh, dear. Uh, that's, a difficult, that's really difficult. Um, the answer is, it's best if you can do it worldwide. Globally, that would be the best solution. But the fact is that the major, the major financial sectors, uh, centers in the world, if you could get them to do it, probably it would have a pretty big impact. Um, and certainly it would have an impact on some of the real sort of short-term financial wizardry if we just did it in the, in, in the UK. Um, the danger, of course, is people say, well, it would just go offshore. It'd be done in Frankfurt or it'd be done in Hong Kong or um, maybe even in Sao Paulo or somewhere like that. So you're quite right. I mean, it's the same with all tax reforms. Single country doing it is not going to work terribly well. You, you said uh, earlier in your presentation that uh, the government bailed out companies like RBS, some of the banking sector. What about, and there was faith lost in the banking sector, 
what about taking it further? Who would bail out governments if they're not in a position to do so? Especially when you think about the Greek, Greek debt crisis and the concern regarding the EC and its contribution. What right. happens? Will there ever be a case where there won't be a larger organisation to bail out another organisation? And if so, can you see that happening on the horizon? Well, the, I mean, the, the answer is that uh, the Bank of England is the lender of last resort. Um, and so, actually, a lot of the lending would come not directly from the government, it would come from the Bank of, the Bank of England. They could be instructed to do it. I suppose the answer is the next stage up is the IMF. And indeed, in the recent economic history of the UK, we did have times when the IMF came in and and sorted us out. But people don't like getting the IMF to come in and, you know, slap their wrists and tell them they've got to do things. Um, I think, actually, that that probably the Bank of England is the right way to go. Um, But it's... I mean, the trouble with the financial, the financial sector is it's, it's kind of it's like an organism. If you push it here, you know something else will happen there. Um, it's very difficult to kind of get get a grip on it. But I, I don't I don't see I don't see that as a huge problem. Do you, Andrew? I mean, I hope not. I mean, it goes back slightly to the <laughs> answer to Ian's. We never know. You never know quite what's going to happen. But I think. Uh, as we stand at the moment, I mean, in the end, the ultimate, ultimate thing is just default. I mean, Greece could just default. Yeah. And then they'd be all right, and the countries, to, you know, the holders of their debt wouldn't be all right. So, and lots of countries have done that. Yeah. I mean, lots of countries have done that, just defaulted. I mean, Argentina defaulted. And um, actually, it didn't do them any great harm, did no. it? No. And no. massive inflation is another way of defaulting. Yeah, you that's know, true. The, the history of the first yeah. half of the 20th century. Yeah. Anyway, enough. One more question and then we should stop. I think we should just say that economists always bring good news, don't we? I, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so I think, I think there's a question up at the back. Okay, to reduce the risk-reward equation, should you consider reducing the liability of um, directors in certain key things such as banking? Because if there's no limited liability as to their, their, their exposure, perhaps you might get um, more cautious and more efficient lending, say. I don't think you'd ever get a director of a bank. I mean, I think that's, that's your problem. Um, can I think about it? And I'll come back to you. <laughs> On, on that happy note, we're, we're out of time. Donald, thank you enormously mm. for all of that. Mm. Mm.